You are listening to WRFI Community Radio, 88.1 FM in Ithaca, 91.9 FM in Watkins Glen, and streaming worldwide at wrfi.org. This is The Scene, and I'm your host, Chantal Thomas. For this week's episode, I spoke with Professor Robert Hockett, my colleague at Cornell Law School, and an expert on financial and economic policy who's advised many of the figures in the progressive wing of the U.S. Congress, including Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Ro Khanna. We caught up on politics and the economy, and in particular how the November 2022 midterm elections might affect the Biden administration's ability to implement its economic policies, given that the Republicans were able to take control of the House. And we also spoke about how to interpret rising inflation in light of record corporate profits. With international climate policy negotiations occurring this week in Egypt with the UN Framework for Climate Change, we also talked about how to incorporate sustainability into economic policy in the U.S. Thank you so much, Professor Hockett, for for joining me today to talk about some of the issues that are in the news these days, and in particular in the wake of the the midterm elections. So the consensus is no red wave, although the Republicans have taken control of the House by a relatively small margin. Democrats have retained control of the Senate by a razor-thin margin. What do you think will happen now that um, the Republicans are in charge of the House for economic policy under the Biden administration? Sure, Chantal. Yeah, really, really great question. Um, so I guess what I'll do is I'll I'll say sort of what I think is most likely and what I most hope on the one hand. Um, while also sort of registering one possible, what strikes me as one possible caveat uh, on the other hand. Um, so the the hopeful um, uh, sort of prediction, I guess I would make, or the hopeful hope uh, that I would uh, uh, sort of articulate, sort of stems from one of the possible messages that some folks seem to be taking um, from the midterm results. Uh, and that is that the, the more sort of angry uh, or extremist uh, wing of uh, the Republican Republican Party or the the so-called you know election denialist or Trumpazoid wing of the Republican Party was sort of repudiated or sort of rebuffed uh, in the midterms because most of those candidates, with just a couple of exceptions, um, ended up losing. Right, notwithstanding uh, poll results prior to the election that it sort of showed them likely winning, um, and those Republicans who did um, then end up succeeding and who did even in many cases exceed expectations were much more of the sort of common sense variety, the let's get things done variety, let's not uh, waste our time with culture wars nonsense, but let's see what we can uh, agree on to sort of get done to sort of improve the prospects of the country and the prospects of the working uh, people of of the country and so forth. Uh, If that does turn out to be um, the dominant message that people take from the midterms, um, and and more maybe more to the point, if that turns out to be the message that uh, a sizable number of Republicans take, Uh, from the midterms, then I'm quite hopeful, right, that we might actually see um, even more progress made of the kind that the Biden administration has made over uh, its first uh, two years, because a lot of what Biden has been pushing uh, is stuff 
that you know even Trumpers uh, were pushing in many cases, but but you know simply weren't prepared actually to make happen. So, for example, the project of reindustrializing the country and bringing back uh, manufacturing as a as a critical sector of the American economy. That was, of course, a message that somebody like Trump was always pushing, but just never actually did anything about and never actually made happen. But lots of Republicans who maybe wouldn't have been um, particularly receptive to that message before Trump made it sort of, quote unquote, respectable among them are now sort of thinking of this as a sort of primary or a, a what ought to be a primary aim of American policy. And given that fact on the one hand, and the fact that many Democrats have come around to that position as well, largely thanks uh, to President Biden's, I think, leadership uh, and successful pushing of it on the other hand, makes me think that, you know, you could really see, we could really see some significant um, additional progress made both um, uh, in the realm of reindustrializing and in the realm of, of renewing the nation's sort of infrastructural capacities. Um, and indeed, there's a, a major piece of legislation that I drafted for um, a Democrat in the House on the one hand and a Republican in the Senate on the other hand, uh, that will be being announced, I think, to probably a great deal of fanfare right after uh, Thanksgiving. So you and I might want to talk more about that uh, then. But if the success that we've had putting that together as a sort of team over the last year is any indication of what is possible more generally and what is likely to happen more generally, then I think we could really see a, a, a terrific uh, two years ahead. All of that being said, um, the caveat I, I suppose I would register is that it is the case that you've got some of the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, types and the Jim Jordan types and the um, you know the kind of uh, the rollover for Trump types uh, in the House and some of those folk are crowing now uh, triumphantly, um, notwithstanding the fact that the you know prognosticated red wave never came to pass. And, and really fixating on the fact that they do have a bare majority uh, now in the House. And they're already talking about spending all of their time basically refusing to raise the so-called debt ceiling, thereby bringing about an economic uh, calamity and you know, launching investigations uh, of the Biden administration and of the Department of Justice's treatment of the supposed patriots um, of January 6th. 2021. Um, and so if that does turn out to be what happens, uh, then of course, the next couple of years could end up being essentially a, a useless mess. Um, and the only silver lining around it will be that they, those Republicans will, of course, confirm further the public um, uh, perception that they're all uh, nut jobs. Um, and then, of course, we would see, I think, a Democratic landslide in the 2024 uh, elections. But I'm hoping it doesn't come to that, of course. Um, and so I'm you know, fairly optimistic for the time being, at least. As you know, that that's a sort of metabolic thing uh, for me. I mean, even when I could give good reasons not to be optimistic, my my body, as it were, is sort of optimistic. So I suppose a certain discount factor applies here uh, when I talk optimistically. <laughs> well, inflation was at the top of the list. You know, in a lot of the polls, what was the number one issue that voters were concerned about was inflation. Um, and the Biden administration caught a lot of flack for pursuing inflationary policies. And then at the same time, you and I were talking about this, that uh, corporations were posting record profits. Bloomberg News, uh, certainly not a left-wing media source, <laughs> uh -huh. Bloomberg News reported that corporate profits had taken, had reached their widest margin since 1950. Mm. 
-hmm. And this is at a time when all of the talk is about inflation and inflation is about prices that are increasing. Part of it, right, is you're increasing prices because you're anticipating that the dollar will have less purchasing power. And then you get a sort of vicious you know, cycle where prices just begin to take off because of that to some, to some extent, that's part of what goes on. And so there's maybe some role for decision-making, you know, that leads to inflation that's related to prices. But but what's you could tell a very different story here, which is that just frankly, you know, businesses were just taking advantage of the story of inflation to give them cover to jack up prices. And then they're posting record profits while, you know, working people are struggling to make ends meet, which just seems incredibly scandalous and outrageous. Yeah, um, a few thoughts uh, maybe on, on this one, Chantal. I mean, first, the the sort of the the simplest and and, and easiest uh, observation I think to make that if prices are rising at a higher rate than wages and salaries are, then wages and salaries cannot be driving right that profit. I mean, those uh, price rate increases. If on the other hand, profit rate increases are higher than the inflation uh, rate increase mm-hmm. is, uh, then they're probably pulling it, right? They're probably the, the the real culprit. And that suggests then that it's worth looking under the hood, so to speak, to see if we can kind of corroborate that hypothesis that basically there's a sort of opportunistic price gouging uh, underway. And if you look under the hood uh, at the more sort of micro evidence to sort of explain that macro uh, evidence, it turns out that the macro supposition or the, the macro hypothesis that we have, are entertaining is indeed fully corroborated, right? There is all sorts of evidence um, of actual CEOs, corporate board members, and so forth, boasting uh, to their own shareholders um, at shareholder meetings and in shareholder calls about the fact that they are successfully raising prices under cover of all of the discussion of inflation um, and boasting about how that's jacking up the profits for those shareholders. Um, So it seems to me that first of all, then, rather than targeting uh, working people, in the way that the Fed, um, largely at the past of people like Larry Summers has been doing of late, we ought to be looking at the profit factor, which is every bit as much uh, a factor in prices as our wages and salaries, and which seems to be, again, the leading indicator in this case, while the wages and salaries uh, are the um, lagging indicator. That's, that's the first thing that seems to be worth noting. Second thing uh, worth noting, of course, is that the inflation problem that's been that's been being talked about here is all over the so-called developed world, right? Most European countries are uh, experiencing record high inflation rates. Many other countries worldwide are uh, as well. And clearly, that's not President Biden. Uh, that's not the U.S. Congress uh, doing that. If you've got a phenomenon that's underway that is global in character rather than simply national in character, then you don't, again, have to be a, a sort of a famous scientist to understand that if you're looking for causation, you're probably looking in the wrong place if you're looking at policies in the U.S. Uh, alone. Um, and indeed, what we what we ought to be looking about, about and talking about more is, you know, global factors that might be playing a role here. Well, what might those be? Well, it seems to be that they're primarily over on the supply side rather than on the demand side, right? I mean, it's no secret, it's no um, mystery um, that the pandemic itself both 
um, substantially crimped supplies of, of various things that people need to buy or want to buy um, during the pandemic itself and disrupted supply chains um, that most of us have been relying upon in order for the goods that we wish to purchase uh, to come, while at the same time uh, has raised demand for some of those same goods at least during the time that more people were sort of staying home and fewer people were going out, right? So to sort of make it anecdotal for a moment, just to sort of aid intuition, when fewer people were going out and about during all of the lockdowns, um, more people then were buying home entertainment centers or you know home appliances or um, various other sorts of devices. Uh, and at the same time that demand then was sort of spiking for those sorts of uh, devices, ironically, uh, supplies of those things or the supply chains pursuant to which those things uh, get produced and then get shipped uh, were experiencing tremendous dysfunction. So you had the classic problem of um, so-called too much money chasing uh, too few goods. But the answer to that, it seems to me, isn't to sort of uh, suddenly shrink the money supply and thereby throw lots of people out of work at a time that they could scarcely afford uh, to be out of work. The answer to that is to work as quickly as possible to restore uh, those supplies or supply chains on the one hand, and also to restore productive capacity on the other hand. Um, and of course, as an international economic lawyer yourself, uh, Chantal, you are more aware than just about anybody of you know, the important role that so-called just-in-time production uh, came to play uh, in American corporate boardrooms uh, over the 90s uh, and afterwards. And the problem, of course, that we've, we've now learned with that and with outsourcing uh, supply uh, productive capacity during those Clinton years uh, and after is that, of course, now in a changed global environment, we find ourselves not able to supply ourselves to the degree that we once could. Um, and so it seems to me that another focus of public discussion and a public policy ought to be on the restoration of our own productive capacity, our own manufacturing sector uh, and the like. And happily, uh, we do see both Democrats and Republicans beginning to recognize that now and beginning to talk about that more now. But it tends to be buried, I think, by all of the talk of, you know, all of the blame game type talk, again, owing, I think, to certain political incentives that certain people act upon, basically to use um, uh, recent inflationary problems opportunistically to try to um, falsely tar Biden uh, with claims of profligate spending and, you know, kind of out of control or runaway spending by Democrats and so forth, which is all sort of nonsensical, but apparently, you know, is thought to gain some political points by, you know, some political candidates. I'm hoping that... Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I'm just hoping that now that the midterms are done um, and there's <clears throat> sort of maybe a little bit less gain to be had by, by again, opportunistically misattributing um, those you know, inflationary phenomena to um, political opponents, um, maybe there'll be a little bit more serious discussion of real causes, real causation, which it seems to be, again, mm -hmm. it's going to focus on productivity, on supply uh, chains and on, again, opportunistic price gouging. You referenced the Fed and, you know, Jerome Powell, for example, saying that he needs to see um, wage growth decline before they can begin to tamp down on, you know, these anti-inflationary measures. And when I hear that, I think, well, why are we saying we need to see wage growth decline, but we're not noticing that corporate profits are at an all-time 
high. I mean, to me, it seems like you would at the very least be interested in both sides of that equation and to, you know, to, to put the onus on, on working people um, seems outrageous to me, but maybe I'm missing something. But then the other piece of that is that I think another, um, I thought that one of the analyses of the kind of anti-globalism backlash, one of the um, points that came out of out of that as folks were assessing what happened was the observation that wages had stagnated for decades, that they had stagnated um, uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, during this entire kind of era of globalization. And so you could make a strong argument that wage growth was just trying to catch people up to where they they should have been. Um, uh, and so rather than wanting to cut wages back or see wage growth, you know, sort of um, uh, decline or reverse itself, that that should be lauded um, as opposed to being seen, you know, as a, a problem or as the culprit. Mm-hmm. So what can I just get your your thoughts on on all of that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, several thoughts there, uh, Chantal. And again, I mean, well observed in, in my humble opinion. I mean, it seems to me that you put your finger on something that's colossally important. And again, um, sort of colossally underreported, um, or at least, you know, the attention that's paid it, um, in, you know, by by public discussion or in public discussion is vastly um, uh, sort of disproportionate in a in the negative direction uh to its importance so first um it's not difficult at all to find you know stats and graphs and tables left and right all over the web um that document the fact and and demonstrate the fact of wage and salary stagnation at least in real terms right basically adjusted for inflation uh, over the last 50 years right since the early 1970s maybe even the late 1960s wages and salaries or real wages and salaries that is again wages and salaries adjusted for inflation have been um, stagnant at best and more often than not actually moving in a, in a downward or negative direction um, secondly and relatedly um, there was a kind of implicit social contract in place, it seems, for the first 25 or 30 years uh, after the Second World War's uh, end, pursuant to which productivity gains in the economy as a whole were, in effect, evenly split between labor and capital. Now, that still meant that it was um, a, a split that operated to the benefit of capital insofar as on a per capita basis, you know, there were much fewer capitalists, so to speak, or capital owners than there were, you know, labor suppliers or salary earners. But at least if we were thinking in terms of sort of broad classes, um, just labor and capital without paying too much attention to the, the relative populations of those two classes, uh, there was a roughly even split when it came to productivity gains. And so workers themselves, um, wage and salary earners themselves, uh, saw improvements in their material standards of living um, up in you know over those first 25 or 30 years, as did you know capitalists or capital owners. Um, but uh, at about the same period, uh, the wages and salaries began to stagnate uh, in real terms. That split uh, ended as well. In other words, that social contract was um, repudiated or abrogated in the sense that all the productivity gains have gone to the capital owners. Virtually none of them have inured to the benefit uh, of labor, um, The, in other words, the wage and salary owners. And that is itself the reason um, for, or that is just the, the sort of statistical counterpart to that real wage 
and real salary uh, stagnation. It also, of course, corresponds to and is the driver of the cause of the wide opening of and the, the wide worsening of inequality, right? Uh, wealth and income inequality um, between you know the so-called one um, percent or even the top one percent of the top one percent uh, on the one hand, and those who are below the top of that distribution uh, on the other. So all of this is very well documented. All of this is uh, readily verifiable and verified. And until you know the the crash of two thousand eight. Um, you sort of weren't allowed to draw attention to this fact, right? You'd be accused of engaging in class war um, as if the defender, as distinguished from the invader, was the person responsible for the war, so to speak. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, happily, it's become possible to talk about these things uh, now. Uh, and in, insofar as that's happened, especially since the Wall Street occupation of 2011, um, that popularized terms like we are the 99, or I should say slogans like we are the 99%, that's a, a sort of a healthy uh, change. But ironically, uh, one might have, you know, sort of expected, you know, against that backdrop or in light of that healthy change, uh, that more Fed officials, including uh, Mr. Powell, would be remarking on it and pointing to it and talking about it and then sort of continuing to talk about it in connection with the current inflationary uh, spate. And you know, some former Fed officials, like my my dear friend and personal hero, Sarah Bloom Raskin, did talk about this back in 2012, 2013, and continue to talk about it now. Um, but you don't find uh, many current Fed, Fed officials talking about this uh, or, again, targeting the right culprit when it comes to uh, the inflationary problem. Instead, weirdly, you see Mr. Powell almost looking as though he was out to sort of prove Karl Marx to have been correct um, in the sense that, you know, you've got a central banker now who has effectively become a kind of mouthpiece for and an instrument of those capital owners um, and essentially kind of hostile then uh, to working Americans, because what he's doing is he's joining Larry Summers in demonizing by blaming working people for inflation and blaming their very modest and only recently begun real wage and salary gains for the inflation, when, as we talked about before, since those things, first of all, are trailing inflation, and since furthermore, they were altogether stagnant for 50 years in violation of the old social contract uh, as well, you would have hoped and you would have thought, particularly now that it's, again, become respectable and okay to discuss inequality, that people like Powell and others would be saying, look, the problem here is the profits, the record profits. The problem here is the price gouging. The problem here is the lack of productive capacity, which is itself um, one of the sources of the wage and salary stagnation. Because of course, as you know, the industrial sector or the manufacturing sectors used to be the ones where the good wages and the the the, the, the sort of living wage or living salaries were, were earned. Um, so you actually, you know, the, the time has never been riper, it seems to me, both in terms of political climate and in terms of just the, the, the data that's available to us after 50 years, the time has never been riper for central bankers to sort of start pointing out that we have to restore manufacturing capacity, we have to restore um, productivity, um, and we have to rein in uh, price gouging uh, behavior uh, on, the pro- on the part of the profit-taking uh, segments of the population and continue to encourage further growth in real wages and 
real salaries and continue to encourage um, a, a, a renewal of bargaining power on the part of labor uh, in our economy. So mm -hmm. instead, you've got Powell sort of sounding almost like, again, he's trying to verify um, uh, Marx's observations back in the 19th century that uh, the bankers or the central bankers and public officials are basically all just professional apologists for the capital owning class um, who are basically trying to um, you know, maximize the size of the industrial reserve army of the unemployed or the underemployed yeah. um, in order to enable, you know, capital to extract more and to gain even more in the way of profits. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time here. And, and since we're, you know, we're in a week where world leaders are um, negotiating around climate policy. And could you reflect on on that? The the idea of the Green New Deal, for some reason, caught a lot of flack. Um, and I, you know, didn't hasn't gotten as much uptake as it I feel should have. But what do you think are the possibilities, and what and what needs to happen to to make a Green New Deal framework really take hold? I think I think part of the answer to that question, um, Chantal, is sort of rebranding, um, and in particular rebranding of a kind that's already uh, begun, that's already sort of happened. I mean, one way of looking at Build Back Better, for example, is that it just was um, a sort of Green New Deal 2.0, so to speak. It was Green New Deal given a new name, um, owing, basically, mm -hmm. I think, owing to a, a sort of a perception that maybe uh, we can get more done if we don't emphasize the green piece of it as much as we emphasize the New Deal uh, piece of it. Uh, and I think what made that possible in turn was the fact that if you really handle the New Deal part or the reindustrialization part, the green part will more or less take care of itself. And the reason for that in turn is that most of the new productive technologies that we're developing and most of the new infrastructural capacities and technologies that we're developing just are green as a matter of course, right? I mean, we don't use whale oil lamps any longer. We don't use kerosene lanterns anymore. We tend to use you know, LED as our primary form of, of lighting. We're sort of moving toward um, renewables as our primary uh, energy sources. And so it's almost the case, it's almost true to say that almost by definition, if you're talking about new technology and new industries and new industrialization, you just are in so doing talking about mm -hmm. green industrialization and green technologies. And so that, I think, offers a kind of a political opportunity, right? Somebody like Biden or the Biden administration, I think, has kind of kind of been surprisingly savvy about this. They've sort of understood that if they talk in terms of the, you know, bringing on board, you know, bringing in as quickly as possible the industries of tomorrow and being a global leader, both in um, the sort of production of or production under or in and the exportation um, of um, the products of tomorrow and the industries of tomorrow and becoming a major exporting country again, mm -hmm. that in talking that way, they can appeal uh, to a lot of so-called moderately oriented folks, both Republican and Democrat alike, without frightening them by sounding like they're, you know, God forbid, like they're environmentalists. Um, and yet they will nevertheless be de facto environmentalists in doing this because again, all of this stuff just is green now anyway. So I think that's the key. Well, I'd love to ask you so many more questions. It's just great to get your perspective all on all of this. Um, but we uh, have to stop. So I will just say thank you so much. Oh, of course. Thanks so much, Chantal. 
This is WRFI Community Radio, and you've been listening to The Scene. I'm your host, Chantal Thomas, and I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School and an expert on financial regulation and economic policy. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of The Scene, go to the local programs page at wrfi.org.